Thank you, Craig. It's great to have you and Donna here with us. And uh, for those of you who have been around Christ Community for a long time, you know Craig served on our staff here at uh, Christ Community and uh, actually played a really important part in uh, Sharon and I landing here at Christ Community, or not landing here, but staying here. Uh, we found Christ Community, and I remember still the second week when we came back to Christ Community, Craig remembered our names. Uh, and that was really significant for us. And it, Craig served so faithfully as a pastor in the way he cared for his people. And, and I'm grateful just to have been able to follow and uh, continue the work that Craig began. And Craig, thank you. It's good to have you and Donna here with us. Donna, are you in here somewhere? So I uh, know she was first service. There she is. She's right back there. So it's great to have you here. Uh, yeah, there she is, Craig. So go sit with her right now. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's just awkward, you guys sitting so close to each other. And yeah. I have a hunch that some of you at this moment are thinking one of two things. Um, some of you are thinking, who is this guy? Uh, or maybe like, who, isn't that the guy on our community group video? I'm not sure I really know who he is. What's he doing here uh, on Sunday morning? Then there's some of you that I, I think might be saying, where have you been? Now, I understand that statement is value neutral. I'm not presuming that you, you're thinking it's good to have you back. Uh, but uh, it's hard to believe, but it's been eight months since I have taught here on a Sunday morning. And I can say it is truly great to be home, uh, to be back again with you at this place in this role today. Uh, for those of you that I've not met, my name's Kevin Harlan, and I serve on the pastoral staff here. I've been a member of the teaching team here at Leewood for 13 years. I guess actually 12 years and four months if you erase the last eight months. Do you have to start over? Do I like now start? This is my second stint as part of the teaching team here. Um, as we've grown and added campuses uh, as, at Christ Community over the last few years, my role has changed in much more of a multi-campus role, uh, working with our campus pastors across the city and with Pastor Jeanette as she works with our partners both here in the city and around the world. I serve on a team that serves at our multi-site office, actually another location. Uh, we just celebrated our one-year anniversary at that location, and that team of people works with uh, our campuses across the city, and it's kind of a central place for all of us to be able to work together and to be doing collaborative work uh, with staff from around the city. Uh, it's actually a, it's kind of a funny story of why it's been eight months since I've been here. Uh, in early 2014, so at the beginning of last year, uh, I began working with Tom on setting up the teaching team schedule for the year. And as Tom and I were working together on that, I told him that I would be on sabbatical in the fall of 2014. Uh, and that we should probably just not schedule me into the teaching schedule for September, October, and November. So I taught here through August. I was to return in December. About a year ago at an all-staff meeting, I announced, as we were going through the calendar of events, I announced to the staff that I would be going on sabbatical in the fall of 2014. After the meeting, Randy came up to me and had that look on his face, and he just sort of said, are you sure your sabbatical's next year, or this year, speaking of 2014? Of course, I know when my sabbatical is. I, I gave him that look like, you know, of, of course I can count to seven. <laughs> and I, we, we get this sabbatical every seven years. And you know, sabbaticals are an amazing gift. And we are grateful for the, that you as a congregation give them to us as pastors. Uh, three months away to unplug and to learn and to study. It's something we look forward to and something we don't lose track of. 
So I was surprised that Randy was a year off. But when I went back, see, Randy's sabbatical is a year after mine, so I just thought, well, you know, I can't believe he's forgotten. But I went back to my office, and I thought to myself, you know, maybe I should check. <laughs> so I looked up when my last sabbatical was, and it was July 2008. Add seven. I went ahead and counted it on my fingers, 2009, 2010. <laughs> and sure enough, Randy was right. I was off a year and I just kind of think that Randy, I hear you are over there, I, I think Randy found a little too much joy in the fact that I had to go back to the staff and tell them I couldn't count to seven. <laughs> well, not long after that, we decided to launch our Shawnee campus, and we recognized that actually that three weeks or three months off uh, would be really helpful for me to be help assisting Tim and the Shawnee launch team in beginning the work out at Shawnee. I've been on the schedule a couple of times since then. Uh, as I mentioned, I was on schedule in December. We felt it was important for you to meet Tim as a new campus pastor at Shawnee before, and so he took that slot of mine. I was in in January, and Kenny uh, started serving with us here at the Leewood campus, and we felt it was important for you to meet him and get to know him, and uh, finally, I'm back. So uh, after eight months, it's great to be back here with you. And thank you to the 42 of you that are happy about it. So... <laughs> In those eight months, there was one major pulpit-worthy event that happened in Sharon and I's life that I feel like I have to share, and I generally believe that every sermon is much better if it begins with pictures of cute babies. So there is our grandson, Landon. Uh, this is last Sunday on Easter Sunday morning. Uh, this is a pastoral privilege that I'm abusing right now, because uh, I know you guys are thinking, why don't I get to show my grandson pictures? So uh, if you didn't get to see him last Sunday and you want to see more pictures, feel free to ask me afterwards. So. That's a long way of saying it's good to be back. Uh, I've really missed being with you, uh, even though Sharon and I have been here and we've, I've worshiped here. I mean, this is my church home. Uh, yet at the same time, it's great to be back you, with you in this role this morning. If you're new with us this morning, we've, uh, we are currently going through a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. We know it in the Bible as the book of 1 Corinthians. That's often how it's referred to. Although we, we have pretty good confidence that this isn't the first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Um, and as you heard read this morning, Paul is now addressing an important topic uh, about giving up rights. And just in the section prior to that, you may be familiar with it, Paul is going to ask this question that might significantly reduce our church annual budget. Should pastors be paid? Now, don't tell me, try to tell me you haven't wondered that yourself, right? It's like, I know, I know who you are. Uh, I mean, we, as as Pastors, we know that there are people out there, and some of you sitting here, that, that think we work one day a week. And that one day a week is actually a half day. So, I mean, <laughs> why should we get paid, right? Maybe you don't think that, or at least I hope not. But let's be honest with this truth, I think, that we, you would probably relate with me on, is that we all know that we've read or heard about pastors who have abused their power for their own personal gain. And unfortunately, it usually involves money. When we hear these stories, it just makes us a little sick, doesn't it? Have you ever stopped to ask why? Why do I feel bad when I read that story? Well, for me, it's unnerving just a bit to recognize that my friends, my neighbors, uh, the people that I know in the community have me in the same category as the person that they just heard the news story about or read the story about. But after I get past my own pity party, 
I really realize that it's not about me. The real wrong is the way this type of abuse of greed and power by the clergy, by pastors, twists and distorts the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is where Paul is going this morning. He's defending the gospel message. And he wants us all to know that the Christian life calls us to give up our rights for the sake of the gospel. Now, if you want to follow along with me this morning, I encourage you to open up your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. As you're turning there, let me just remind us where we are in the context of this letter. If you were here with us last week on Easter, you know that we jumped ahead in the letter to 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul writes about the importance of the resurrection. We felt it was appropriate for last Sunday. But two weeks ago, as we looked at the eighth chapter of 1 Corinthians, you might remember that Paul was talking about whether it was okay to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And Paul basically landed this way. He said, look, if, it, if you're going into some home where they do not feel good about that, it's okay for you to eat it. But if you're going into some home where it's, they don't feel good about it, don't do it. In other words, the Christian faith calls us to give up our rights for the sake of the gospel. And so as we come to chapter 9, Paul uses a long list of rhetorical questions to illustrate this by first letting us know that he's just like all of the traveling teachers. He's, he's like one of the, the uh, uh, preachers that is going by, and he has the right to be paid. So look with me, beginning at verse 1. He's writing to them. Am I, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If others... If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Now, what's happening here is that he had heard word that some were questioning whether he was really an apostle because he wasn't receiving payment. It's like, well, you, you must not be real if you're not getting paid. And so he's trying to address it. Am I not an apostle? At least I am to you because you are the seal of my apostleship. And he continues, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Again, speaking as an apostle, do we as apostles not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take a, along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? You see where he's going here? He begins by showing that he's like those others that are being paid, these that are traveling around from apostles to soldiers, from vineyard owners to shepherds. And then he turns and appeals to the law. Look in verse 8. He says, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, and now he quotes Deuteronomy 25.4 and says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now, hang with me here. We're getting uh, very agrarian uh, metaphors that he's going to give us, and you're, you're going to get lost in this. But let, just hang with me as we see what Paul's written. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? In other words, doesn't he care about the oxen? The oxen are getting to eat as well. Well, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher threshes in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, 
Is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? I mean, you see all the rhetorical questions lined up, and if you're reading this for the very first time, uh, you're thinking to yourself, okay, where's he going with this? I mean, he keeps adding on to it. Others have the right. The law says there's a right. Even the oxen are cared for. And now he turns to the temple practices. Look in verse 13. Do you not know that those that are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. And just in case you're missing his argument up to this point, he finishes by letting his readers know that it's actually God's command that he receives payment. You see it in verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. I think one of the things that we do disservice to the scripture is um, we often read it just sort of forgetting that this was a letter that actually people read for the very first time and forget what they might have been experiencing as they were reading through this letter. So put yourself in the, you know, this has been unfolded or rolled out and it's getting read for the very first time and they're going through, what are the people thinking? Oh, this is why he wrote the letter. He wants money from us. I mean, you can just imagine this is, they're thinking that Paul wants us to pay up. This is actually, he's, he's written all these other things just for this moment. You can see their skepticism building. He's about to ask us for money. But that's not what happens. Look at verse 15. Paul says, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. So just in, think you're, in case you're thinking about it, that's not what this letter is about. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of ground, my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. In other words, Paul wants them and us to know this. That we have rights. But the gospel calls us to sacrifice. Paul has every right to ask them to pay him and to support him in his work. And yet he knew at this moment, and you could see him addressing it specifically, that this could be a problem for this young church in Corinth. You see, if, you're, if you've been with us, you know earlier in the letter, Paul addressed the disunity that was brewing in the church over which teacher each person was following. And he knows that his receiving pay could twist the message for the Corinthians. And so he gives up his right for the sake of the gospel. Now, before you jump to conclusions and want to start slashing the church budget, let me, let me just be clear here, and particularly my uh, paycheck. Uh, <laughs> let me just be clear that he's not saying that pastors shouldn't be paid. As a matter of fact, in, um, in his letter to the church at Philippi, uh, he wrote them and thanked them for the support that they were giving to him. In a follow-up letter that he'll write to this very church in Corinth, he will ask for support as they become healthier and more ready for that message so that it does not twist the gospel. Paul had the right to, but in this moment in time, because he felt it was not culturally 
the right thing to do, he sacrificed for the gospel. Now, I feel like it's appropriate for me at this moment, and who knows when I'll have the next opportunity to do this, right? To just say thank you for your support, for the way that you give so generously to support our staff for the work that God has called us to. I am personally thankful for you. And it is rare for me to get the opportunity to stand before you here and say thanks. Your generous staff allows us as a, or your generous support allows us as a staff to do this work of proclaiming the gospel, to put our energies, our full energies to that task so that we can work together as a church in building and caring for this bride we call Christ community. But please know from me, and I think I speak for our staff for this very, in this very same way, that if the fact that we, if I, that I am receiving a paycheck ever becomes a hindrance to the work of the gospel, I will find something else to do and continue this work while paying for my family and caring for my needs in some other way. This is what Paul is saying. But it's not so much about him, it's about the fact that we all are called to sacrifice for the gospel. We might lose this message, the impact of this message, if we just think that, well, Paul's just talking to pastors here. He's using himself as an illustration, as an apostle, to speak to all of us. As a matter of fact, for some of you, the call to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel may mean that you need to become a pastor and leave your current work. Now, as some of you know, I have an engineering degree. I chose that path for three reasons. One, my dad is an engineer. Two, I was good at math. At least, at least it's counting under six, I'm, I'm pretty good at. <laughs> and three, at the time of my high school graduation, it was the highest paid starting salary out of college. And to be honest, if point three hadn't been true, I'm not sure the first two would have mattered much. But in college, I became deeply involved in the work of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And in doing this, my greatest joys were found in the work of proclaiming the gospel and of building the church. And although it was scary, I began to sense that God had something different for me than engineering. Now, I had a right to pursue my path of studies and we know as a church, right, we know this to be true, that all work matters to God. And I truly believe that engineers who are doing the work of engineering can have as much to contribute for the sake of the gospel as pastors. But as I look back, I believe that God was asking me to make a sacrifice for the sake of the gospel and to give up the path that seemed more financially secure and prosperous. And just to prove that God has a great sense of humor, my wife Sharon, uh, she broke up with her boyfriend before me because he declared to her that he felt he was called to be a pastor. <laughs> she let him know that she was not called to be a pastor's wife. And in those early days of dating, I think maybe my most endearing trait to her was that I was an engineer. Now, that, that right there, that tells you a lot about me, doesn't it? <laughs> like, 
maybe, wait, there aren't more endearing traits than that. Um, You see, Sharon has every right to not be a pastor's wife. But when the opportunity came for us to join the staff here and to become a pastor, um, we could have done something different. I fully believe that God would have honored in similar ways any work outside of pastoring. But Sharon felt this was the right thing for us. She felt it was the right thing for her because she knows that the Christian life regularly calls us to give up our rights for the sake of the gospel. So let me just ask you this morning, what are you giving up for the sake of the gospel? Are there things in your life that may be hindering or distorting or holding back the good news of Jesus? And what might he be asking you to give up for his sake? Now, I know the way the Holy Spirit works in my life. I don't mean to presume this on you, but oftentimes in a moment like this, God's stirring in my mind an idea, a thought, a something that he's sort of nudging at me, poking at me. And because we're just in the early part of this message, I just want to pause for a moment and ask you, if if God's doing that work in your life right now, write it down. It's too easy to walk out of this when it's over and to not even remember or pretend you don't remember and not do work with God in prayer in the upcoming week, asking him, how might he be wanting you to give up, to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel? As we continue looking on, we'll see that Paul continues this work of laying out his case, this defense, if you will, and he gets to the heart of the matter in verse 19 that Craig read for us this morning. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one one under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, the Gentiles or the Greeks, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Now remember, this is a brand new church come together, a a group of people coming together from a wide variety of backgrounds, Jew and Gentile, slave and slave owner, rich and poor. And you can just imagine what must be happening as these groups began worshiping together and began introducing their friends to one another. There was tension and each wanted their preferences to be the norm. I like my music this way. I I prefer if we do it this way on Sunday morning. I prefer that, could we just keep doing some more of this? When you come to my house, I want you to do this. I'm going to cook this. But Paul won't let them off the hook. And he tells them that, yes, we love our individual preferences, but yet we are called to serve others. Do you see what Paul's saying here? He's saying that he's actually giving up his preferences and connecting with Jews and their laws and with Gentiles who don't see themselves as under the law. This means he's good at conversation with both. This means he's shared meals with both 
sets of people. This means that he's learned how to translate, how to communicate the gospel in ways that make sense to both. Not just in ways that the story connects with him. He's given up his preferences for the sake of the gospel. Now, just to be clear, because I feel like it needs to be addressed, you you may be asking that question as you look at this here. Um, Paul's not giving a license here to sleep with prostitutes just so you can reach others who are sleeping with prostitutes. Remember, we dealt with that early on in this section, and Paul's tried to deal with this. This is important for us to just make sure we don't miss. This is not what he's meaning by, I've become weak so that I can reach those who are weak. But within the framework of what it means to be a Christian, there are a lot of personal preferences that we often try to label as God's way. And Paul wants us to be able to recognize that these preferences, that they're just that, they're just preferences, and we ought to be willing to give them up for the sake of others. The language Paul chooses here in verse 19 is really strong language. In our translation, it's uh, kind of, it's used as servant, but it's really a slave language. Paul says he's actually become a slave to others. This means that he's actually ruled by their choices and preferences, all for the sake of the gospel, so that others can come to know Jesus as he has. Now, one of the cultural preferences that I think often get in our way, individual preferences in our culture that often gets in our way, is what sociologists refer to as cocooning or hunkering down. And as Christians, we can take our good right to privacy and our good right to care for our family and begin to ignore those around us. We can look at the issues that face our city, even though they may be less than 20 miles away, and, drive, and we drive by them on our way to work, and we sort of think to ourselves, that's not my problem. Now, let me just ask for a moment, do I have a right, do we have a right to have a movie theater in our home, shop on Amazon, and never leave our house? It's kind of hitting a little too close to home for me personally right now. And I would say, yes, we do have that right, right? Especially when the Masters is on. We have that right. But the Christian life calls us to something else. I think we know that. It calls us to get outside of ourselves and to seek the good of others. At Christ Community, we often refer to this as seeking the welfare of the city. Or you might have heard this phrase of pursuing the common good. These concepts are grounded in the belief that the gospel calls us to a life of sacrifice, to a life of generously giving up our individual preferences or cocooning and hun- or hunkering down, of, of thinking only of me, of my family, maybe my small group of Christian friends, so that we can seek the good of the whole. We can ser- seek and serve others. There's an Old Testament account of this that we read about in the book of Jeremiah. You may have heard us talk about it here on a Sunday morning. If you've, if you've not, I'd encourage you to go to Jeremiah and look at this story because if anyone ever had the right to hunker down, it was the Jews who were in exile in Babylon. They were a mistreated people. 
with deep hopes that they wouldn't be there for long. And the prophet Jeremiah came on the scene to encourage them. And it, but his words must have been very different from what they expected. I don't know what they were expecting, but if I were them, as an exile living in Babylon, I, I would have been expecting Jeremiah to say something like, hang in there, it won't be much longer. Just keep taking care of your family and for the others in your same faith. We'll get through this together. I promise we will. So his words must have been a shock to them when he told them to build houses and to settle down, to have families, to start businesses, to seek the welfare of the city, to seek the good of the entire city. He tells them, because when that happens, you also benefit, you also get good. You see, you hunker down and you only get your own good. You seek the good of the whole and serve others, and you get your good and the good of all. Now, as Christians, it's easy for us to hunker down. And I think we've kind of become fairly good at the Christian story that actually tells us to hunker down, that, that God's encouraging us to hunker down. And we hear him saying things like, hang in there. It won't be much longer. Just keep taking care of your family and the others, the other Christians you know, and we'll get through this together. A better day is coming. But like Jeremiah, Paul urges us on to places of discomfort and sacrifice for the good of others. Matt Perman, in his book, What's Best Next, wrote about how the gospel calls us to these places of sacrifice. When he wrote these words, he says, we are to do good even if it requires a sacrifice on our part. Radical generosity, not self-protection or hunkering down, is the Christian ethic. We should be willing to make things harder on ourselves to make things easier on others. And he also wrote, he said, don't excuse yourself from doing good because it is risky or hard. We are to go to extremes to help others because Jesus went to extremes to help us. So let me just pause for a moment and ask, are you hunkering down? Are you just waiting for some future day when you're hoping it will get better? Or are you doing the things that are risky and hard to serve the good of others for the sake of the gospel? In what ways may he be asking you to leave the comfort of your home for the sake of the gospel? How might he want to use you at school with your friends or through your work? Okay, there's one more right that we ought to give up and it's this. We love instant gratification and yet we are called to a lasting reward. We are such impatient people, aren't we? Now, don't get me wrong. I love the thought of having Google Fiber in my neighborhood. But should I really be so troubled by the half second it takes to load the web page on my computer? I mean, I changed internet providers just to try to make that faster. But what we've just talked about, this idea of seeking the common good of the city, 
This idea of intentionally seeking to serve others, to learn their preferences, to care for them, takes time and is slow. It's not an instant activity. And yet we often want the spread of the gospel to be quick and simple. Now, I'm all for us finding simple ways to communicate the gospel to classmates, to our neighbors. But unfortunately, our love for instant gratification is often bubbled over into how we think about proclaiming the good news. And yet we have this hunch, don't we, that the gospel shouldn't be reduced to a five-minute conversation and a decision. And so it's rare for us to actually talk to people about Jesus. There have been all kinds of studies over the years that have shown that the ways that the gospel comes to life in people, the way that God uses to transform lives, and it almost always occurs in the context of long-term relationships. And yet when we think about what it means for us to know and serve the preferences of others, so that those long-term relationships could begin to emerge? The idea of pursuing the good of the whole instead of just what I want? I don't know about you, but that seems really hard. And at times, it just requires more of me than I really want to give. More than I really want to invest. And so I don't do that either. But Paul wants us to know it's worth it. And he makes it clear what's at the heart of all this hard work. Look at verse 18. He says, what then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. And then in verse 23, did you hear Craig say, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. If we are patient enough, we can begin to see the gospel as its own reward, how the gospel comes to life in people as a reward. Keeping our eyes on seeing the gospel coming to life all around us, the people we know, in the church we care for, in the vocations that God has called us to, and in the community where God has placed us, is a lasting reward that will fuel us much further than any monetary exchange. But on this side of eternity, we only get glimpses of a much greater reward to come. Like the conversation I had in early January with a young woman on our first Sunday at the Shawnee campus who told me that she'd never gone to church, but she felt God was wanting her to get involved and had heard that we were starting something in her neighborhood. Or like my conversations with the business leader in our community who is eagerly seeking to pursue the, the good of others, both in his company and in the community, for the sake of the gospel. Or like a recent children's ministries application, a volunteer application that we received, where a woman described how Christ's community had been an answer to prayer, that she, a prayer that she had made in 1982 when she left the church and thought she left the church for good. And in the application, she described how all of a sudden she craves God's word like chocolate. And how she's finally learned that God really does love her. 
or like the Instagram video that I watched this week of a young former Christ Community family member, a young child who was baptized this past Easter Sunday morning in Denver. And I couldn't help but think back to the first conversation that I had with his mom and dad as they entered the doors of Christ Community 10 plus years ago. And although he didn't use, the dad didn't use these words, he basically told Sharon and I how he hated the church. And God got a hold of his life. And you as a church family loved him back to the church. And the gospel came up alive to him as you gave up your preferences for him. This is what you are doing when you serve here at Christ Community. You're giving up your preferences for the sake of the gospel. You care for and teach our children on days, yes, they're not all like this, but on days where you want nothing more than peace and quiet. You hang with, out with students when your head is spinning with all the things that you have to get done. You take risks at the lunch table with your classmates about conversations of faith when you want nothing more than to just keep it quiet that you're a Christian. You invite people into your home for community group on nights when you want nothing more than a quiet night at home. And you give generously to this church when you prefer that you could just spend it as you wish. And when we stop and listen, we hear stories like these of how God is using us individually and collectively for his good. And this is the reward we're after. The Christian life calls us to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning and want you to know that we seek to be a people who care deeply about the preferences of others and how we could best care for and love those around us. Lord, forgive me for my selfishness. Lord, forgive us for our selfishness, for the ways we desire and defend our own rights and preferences and aren't willing to give them up so that others can be reached with the good news of the gospel. Thank you for this beautiful picture that Paul writes to us this morning. Nudge us out of places of comfort and into places of service where others can learn the good news of Jesus who gave up his preferences for us, who said to his father, not my will, but yours be done, to die so that we might live. Lord, give us eyes to see the preferences of others, courage to take the risks, to do the hard work he's called us to. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.